You know, it was slow. I, my friend Beth H. says said something to me years ago. You know, if alcoholic took everything in one fell swoop, alcoholism in one fell swoop, we'd all just go to AA and get sober and work the steps with diligence. But alcohol takes a little bite and you lower your standards and then it takes another bite and you lower your standards. And so I didn't know I was living in squalor. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hola! 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 Amigos and amigas! That (laughs) was the voice of Mr. Matthew M. that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And you are going to hear so much more from him in just a moment. But first things first. This episode right here, right now, is brought to you by Jen and George. Do you know what Jen and George did? Well, let me tell you. They went to our website, soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow PayPal donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Jen and George, for your generosity. This episode is coming right out to youans. I, John M., will be the chairperson for this meeting at your fingertips, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So, please take a seat around this virtual table, and let's get Started Now, that meeting at your fingertips, that came from a listener uh, who wrote in a couple of weeks ago. His name was Jake A. He said he enjoyed having Sober Speak, uh, the meeting at his fingertips. And I just really like that. So, uh, I mean, you get it, fingertips, like, in other words, like if you're on a device and, and you're pressing with your finger, so it's at your fingertips. But anyway, I just absolutely love that. And by the way, I hope I got that right on the beginning. I know Ola means hello. And I know that amigos, I believe, is a male friend. And then amigas, I believe, is a female friend. Now, amigas is something completely different. I believe that's eggs or something that you eat when you're in a restaurant, but nothing. Nonetheless, amigas, I believe, is a female friend. So if, if, if what I was trying to do was say, hello, friends, uh, in, uh, Espanol. And I hope I got that right. So bienvenidos to all of you out there. And hopefully I pronounced that one correctly. I just know that I see when I've landed in Miami before, when I'm flying, it says bienvenidos or, or bienvenido, bien, is it bienvenido or bienvenido? Uh, oh, uh, does it, does it have an S on the end? And anyway, what I'm trying to say in a very awkward way is, Welcome to every single one of you. If you are not in our super secret Facebook group and you would like to be part of that amazing, uh, all those like, uh, excuse me, the uh, all of those amazing like-minded friends, Bill W. Allenon and other 12-step programs, well, come on in and join us. All you need to do is send me your email that is associated with your 
Facebook account. Remember, it has to be the email associated with your Facebook account. And uh, I will get you out the invite for that. Uh, We would love to have you along for the ride. And for those of you who do not know this, when I say that it's a secret Facebook group, that just means that uh, people can't search for it and find it. Uh, That means that you have to, uh, in order to see the content and the members who are in there, you have to be part of that group. Uh, Obviously, we want to protect people's anonymity, and that's how we go about doing that. If you're not following us on Instagram, I'm at Soberspeak, all one word. If you would like to send me a voice memo, I would love to hear from you. Just uh, record something into your cell phone uh, and send it to John, J-O-H-N at Soberspeak.com or You can go to our website, soberspeak.com, click on the contact us page, and you will see a little microphone on the right side of the page that says send voicemail, and you have 90 seconds to leave whatever sort of message you would like, uh, PG rated if you can, please, especially if I'm going to play it on the air. All right, now on to the important part of what we have going on here today. So you don't have to listen to any more of my uh, jibber jabber. Well, I'll have some more at the end, but nonetheless, this is Matthew M. And Matthew comes from a loving Irish Catholic family. We'll talk about Matthew's career as a musician uh, and his days in a rock and roll band. Uh, Matthew is extremely vulnerable about many of the mistakes that he made, uh, made in his life. Uh, including getting a an 18-year-old pregnant with child when he was 31 years of age. And you will want to find out how that story turned out uh, with the mother of his daughter and his daughter, uh, Phoebe Rose. And that's going to be in part two next week. By the way, I already have part two uh, recorded uh, and scheduled to come out next week. You will have to tune in to hear uh, part two next week because it will knock your socks off. I promise you. Um, One quote that I enjoyed in this particular episode among many is Matthew says, you will never know what will set the wheels of grace in motion. And that's how it's been for me, folks. Once again, he says, you will never know what will set the wheels of grace in motion. All right. So we will have Plenty O listener feedback at the end of this. And once again, make sure you turn in, tune in next week to hear the second half of Matthew's story. Enjoy this, and I'll talk to you on the back end. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Mr. Matthew M. So Matthew M., first of all, why don't you go and introduce yourself first and give your sobriety date, if you wish, which I happen to know what that sobriety date is, but go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, Thank you, John. My name is Matthew, and uh, my sobriety date is today, May 16th, 27 years ago, so 1993. Congratulations. (laughs) Thanks, John. Happy birthday. It is a good one today. What did you say? 27 years, right? 27 years. Wow, that is absolutely fantastic. Uh, um, you know, I remember when I got sober thinking, wow, you know, looking at people with like 20 years sober, even 15 years sober, 10 or right. five and thinking, no way, that can't happen <laughs> to me. And and uh, here we sit. So right. I'm, very, uh, uh, I'm, I'm very glad for you. Congratulations. Thank you. All right. So. The reason that we are sitting here today is, uh, well, number one, we're both alcoholics. Right. Uh, and then the second reason would be is that uh, you are sponsored by one of the uh, the fan favorites here on uh, Sober Speak, and that is Mr. Bill C. And I saw you and Jay, who we also did a uh, an episode with, and it's not been released yet, you and Jay and Bill on a... Mm, I, I I don't know what it was an AA kitchen table type of uh, conference and yep. for, for set up by the New Orleans uh, groups. Am I correct about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're pretty tied in with that group. We go there once every couple of years. So, so I asked uh, Jay about this as well. But why don't you kind of give me your version of the uh, the kitchen table AA? Uh, you know, uh, a lot of us, including myself 
are on Bill C's uh, daily email. And by the way, if you want to get on that and you're not, anybody can be on it. It's, it's open to everybody and it's free. It's Bill C at kitchentableaa.com. But why don't you go ahead and uh, tell me about your association with that throughout the years? Well, so uh, Jay and Bill and I all attended the same home group meeting. I think I met Bill. Uh, he became my sponsor when I was two years sober, so 25 years ago. Uh, it's the Hermosa Beach meeting, the Hermosa Beach Sunday, Monday Night Men's Stag. And the emphasis in that meeting is sponsorship and the steps, but particularly sponsorship. Uh, largely due to Bill's uh, <laughs> authority in the meeting, but um, he tends to say that you have 11 steps that teach you how to do the most important step. And early on, Bill and Jay and I were realized that we had a penchant for doing this work and we were had interesting stories about it, interesting people we'd sponsored and strange events that had come to pass. And we were invited to, I think it all started in Lafayette, Louisiana, and we decided to call it Kitchen Table and talk about the 12 step. And as a result, we've been doing it for about 20 years now on the road. So. And so you guys kind of travel around as a group and you will do that sort of presentation, if you will, or talk, whatever you want to call it for. Do you do it at conferences as well? Uh, so Bill, Bill and I, different uh, groupings of us do it at conferences. But yeah, we've done it in Iceland. We've done it in Canada. We've done it in different places in the United States. And uh, sometimes it's all three of us. Sometimes it's two of us. Sometimes it's a, a different combination of people, but we are the kind of founding fathers of it. And the idea is, you know, the real work in AA takes place across the kitchen table, sitting there working with another alcoholic like Ebby and Bill, but also like uh, Bob. I've been in Bob's kitchen and seen the, the coffee pot, you know. I have too. Those twelve steps going up to the house. You know, those. I, I originally I thought I go, no way. Do they actually have twelve <laughs> steps here? I asked in the house. They they said that that was put in after the fact. <laughs> it just would have been a little too much. <laughs> All right. So let's talk then about Mr. Matthew M. Uh, Matthew M. Uh, so you live right now out in uh, California. Is that right? Yep. So let's go back to, uh, you know, I don't want to spend a ton of time on what it was like or what you were like, what happened and what, you know, I want to spend more time on what you were like now, but let's, you know, go back so you can qualify a little bit. So tell me a little bit about yourself, where you came from, how do you got to where you are today? So thank you for posing the question that way. I came from a very loving family. I had a uh, two amazing people. Joe and Dorothy were my parents. Uh, my father was very hardworking, very self-sacrificing. He put his family first. My mother was a quiet, a lovely, observant woman. And my grandfather, Cornelius Mitchell, my dad's dad actually died of alcoholism in 1945. And on my father's death, deathbed, he told me that Bill Wilson himself had tried to help my grandfather. So we have a history of alcoholism in our family. My brothers are both alcoholics. Um, I'm the youngest of four, and I'm the youngest by several years. I was a surprise. And uh, I swore I would never be like my, my particularly one brother who is particularly egregious in the way his alcoholism upset the family. But when I, so I didn't drink in high school like most people did. In fact, the one time I did drink was a total disaster. And then uh, when I went off to college and my brother had come home that year and, and slept in his old room and started going to AA, I, you know, the, my world changed. I started, you know, smoking marijuana and drinking beer all the time. And I actually tried to get sober my freshman year of high school, of college, because it was already out of control. Um, but, uh, I, I didn't try with any help of a program. I just stopped. And at one point, my girlfriend brought me a six pack and some pot and said, please take your medicine. You're not very nice without <laughs> it. And uh, But fast forward, I did get two degrees. I studied a lot when I drank. And uh, I got a degree in English and a degree in religious studies. And I... Um, religious studies, huh? Yeah. And that happened by accident. I actually just took so many religious studies classes that my... Uh, 
my counselor said, you know, you, if you take one more class, you have a minor in religious studies. So I took the class. And So does that uh, I'm mean a seeker. you were kind of drawn towards some sort of spiritual way of life you were maybe trying to seek? All, all my life. I, I was raised in a Catholic uh, in a Catholic family, and I was put to Catholic school. But John, you, you have to understand at that time, it was the 70s, right at the beach was where my, you know, first through eighth grade was. So there were these nuns and these black habits that we referred to as the witches of God, which is terrible looking back on it. But we, we felt oppressed by them. And, and then at the beach, there was the sexual revolution happening. You know what I mean? It was a really strange situation. So I, and that pretty much describes my whole personality. I'm drawn towards spiritual and things that transcend the material. And yet, you know, wine, women, and song are my downfall. And I can continually would try different combinations to see how I could make that work. <laughs> and what eventually happened is after I graduated from college, I, I knocked around, did a bunch of different stuff and ended up playing music in a number of different bands. Sometimes I tell this story like one band ended it, but I just was such a, a pig in the way that I lived my life, um, even in this sort of dream job with really good people that I was just continually asked to leave situations. So what happened uh, event eventually was I was back in California. I'd lived on the East Coast for a while trying to make it in music out there. And I was back in California living near the beach again. And my wonderful parents, Joe and Dorothy, were a couple miles away. And my mother was very, very sick with cancer. And we had it was well known that she was going to die from this disease, uh, cancer. And I had a job at a restaurant and I uh, was terrible at it. I was a manager of a restaurant and the, I was 31 years old and all the waitresses were 18 and I ended up uh, getting fired for getting the waitresses drunk and spending, you know, stealing all the stuff I did. And, and the day they fired me, one of the waitresses told me she was pregnant and all that did to me was it didn't motivate me to make my life better. It motivated me to try to escape more. And I went into my apartment uh, sometimes very much hoping I would die from whatever I could put in me. I drank all the time. Uh, I didn't pay my rent. Uh, so this is my sobriety date, May 16th. So around May 8th or so was Mother's Day. And um, I weighed 108 pounds on that day. And I was uh, hiding in my apartment. I had been very, very cruel to that pregnant girl. She was eight and a half months pregnant at that time. And um, I mean, in ways that I never thought I would treat someone because of the good example I was raised with. And my brother, after I, I was invited to Mother's Day, and no one had seen me for quite a while, and and I went down to Mother's Day, which we assumed would be my last mother's, my mom's math, last Mother's Day. And apparently I, I ruined it. Mm -hmm. So that's so, what I was like. So uh, I want to go back to the rock and roll thing just a little bit. What kind of yeah. rock and roll band were you in? And Well, for the sake of other people involved, I won't name names. But for yeah. a while, I played in a big funk band, a 12-piece funk band. And then I uh, played in various indie bands, and I played in uh, the some of the bands uh, around the country were kind of a lot of people. Uh, we were sort of the REM kind of timing, you know, that kind of sound. Uh, I will say that um, music is is actually my first love uh, above all things, and. I was lucky to meet really good people and get into with some people who really did do great things. And had I been uh, clear headed, I, I, it would have been a completely different story, but it was really me. It wasn't lack of talent that hurt me. It was really my personality when uh, in full blown alcoholism, but we played, uh, you know, all over the colleges of the East coast. I played in all over the West coast, um, lots of different kinds of tours and that kind of stuff. And so what, what instrument were you playing or were you singing or what I play lead guitar and I sing and I write music. I still, still do. Write I, music? You can, oh yeah. yeah I, I can see the, uh, I see the guitar on the wall there. So the, the ones you don't see are, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight guitars in here, a mandolin and a banjo. I don't go a day without playing music. Wow. Yeah, except at it, the end. Was it therapeutic for you in your recovery? Well, 
when I was a kid, when I was in seventh grade, my mother um, was a school teacher. And I was with hanging out with the same five guys. They were because I went to the small Catholic school. And we we're a very cohesive group because it was very, very uncool to be in my go to my school. I mean, the other school kids would throw rocks at us and and we were close and they were all good athletes and stuff. And and I always thought like a lot of alcoholics I hear now, they're smarter than me, they're better looking than me, they're better at sports than me. And the fact is they were only better at sports than me, but I couldn't see it. And my mother came home one day and said, uh, I'm in seventh grade when acne started to take over my entire body. She said, you're not picked first for the team, are you, darling? And uh, so when you asked me if, if the music was therapeutic for me in my recovery, it was therapeutic for me in my survival as a child. I, I played guitar four or five hours a day sometimes. Also, there was the chaos of having alcoholic brothers that were much older. And, you know, it's so funny. I was in seventh grade. I played guitar every day. I, I really did have terrible acne. And by my sophomore year of high school, I was dating the head cheerleader because I could play Here Comes the Sun. So, <laughs> so thank you, mom. You know, <laughs> I've always been grateful to mom. So, and I love it. I, I just love it. I love music. Do you get to participate in your music? Well, obviously you play every day, but do you do it in front of, uh, uh, you know, any sort of crowds or, you know, coffee shops or anything anymore? Uh, occasionally it's, it's, you know, I have four children and a disabled wife and, uh, I sponsor a lot of people and I travel all over the world for my job. So it, being in a band is like being in a marriage with four people. And it's usually like being in a really bad marriage with four people <laughs> because there's a lot of creative differences and there's uncomfortableness. And when women come between people, it's like that. But I do play with my children. My son is very good. And, um, I play occasionally, uh, in the South Bay, they do like a benefit thing for sober living and I'll put together a small group for that. And, uh, I do try to play with other people. It's just, I, I don't, I write songs a lot. I've, I've written quite a few songs in the last several years, uh, but I don't have the energy or the desire to, to put together a band. Understood. I like, I like my life. All right, so let's go back into your story a little bit. So, okay, you uh, you described a kind of a qualification, if you will, right? You know, right. I'm an alcoholic. You know, we we all have our wild stories, but usually there's some sort of, uh, I guess, turning point or you know, a year or uh, a week or whatever that launches people uh, into the program or launches people in to get to help. Was there some sort of point for you, or was it a progression of well, yeah. So yeah, I almost got there. So, you know, it was slow. I, my friend Beth H says, said something to me years ago, you know, if alcoholic took everything in one fell sloop, alcoholism in one fell sloop, we'd all just go to AA and get sober and work the steps with diligence. But alcohol takes a little bite and you lower your standards and then it takes another bite and you lower your standards. And so I didn't know I was living in squalor. You know, I had a, an apartment at the beach with a good roommate and we went to the beach and watched the sunset every day. And then he moved to Mexico and kept his part of the apartment. And I got this terrible job at this restaurant. And then slowly over time, having gotten fired and having this girl be, you know, her pregnancy that was um, just not the way I had planned my life. And we weren't a compatible pair. And I was cruel. I, I don't want to get too more specific because she's may hear this, but I was physically abusive and I had never even thought I could possibly be that way. And maybe even worse, honestly, because there were just a few examples of that, I was psychologically abusive. So the descent in the year of um, 1993 was fairly pronounced. You know, I'm in an apartment where slowly the only thing I ended up doing was walking next door to the liquor store. I mean, I'd pawned some guitars and, you know, kept uh, contact with some real low bottom people that could help me get things. But other than that, I was just in an apartment sitting on a couch drinking and not able, they kept getting worse. I could like, I, this girl's not going to get unpregnant. I can't get a job. Um, I, I can barely face going out into the sunlight. And then mother's day, I would guess would be the, the turning point. And, and I like to say, and my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous is you never know what's setting the wheels of grace in motion. 
And what set the wheels of grace in motion for me was my brother took me to Mother's Day. I ruined it for everyone. And I still don't know what happened. I actually asked my sister a few years ago what happened because my sister and I are very close. And she said, you were vile to our mother. And it's so funny, John, I I, I have a hard time talking about this without getting uh, pretty emotional because I have never respected anyone as much as I respect my mother. There was never like uh, angst. I didn't blame her for anything. I, I loved her like completely without reservation. I still do. I love she's been dead for several years. So I ruined this Mother's Day and I went home. And it's funny what sets the wheels of grace in motion. What happened that day is when my brother and I got in this fight, and neither of us can remember what it was about. <laughs> but we got into this fight. And, you know, I, I joke about this, but Irish families fight. They just do, you know, and it's kind of like swans on a lake. They're floating gently on a lake and then they bump into each other and they go, blah, blah, blah. And then they go their opposite direction. Go, okay, see you Thanksgiving. Yeah, okay, say hi to mom. You know, it's very, very strange culture, although it's the only one I knew. So I didn't know. But so my brother and I had this fight and I got out of that car. Now, remember, I haven't visited my mother who's dying of cancer. I haven't. Uh, shown up for anybody. I've been abusive to a, a defenseless teenager and I'm 31 and I, I'm so full of shame. And I felt that I needed to win the argument with my brother. And that's what I mean. Like, I really believe there is a pervasive grace. And I believe, and this is just my experience, I believe that the creative force that I like to call the timeless plentitude of being, which is a, an Advaita Hinduism term tapped me on the shoulder and made me a little more angry that day so that I would call my brother back. And I, I waited till he got home and I let him have it. I, I unleashed all the years of what it was like to be his little brother. And, you know, you joked about the, uh, about the uh, Bob's house in Akron having 12 steps to the front door. My brother was a low, low bottom drunk. He lived in his car for a while and he did horrible things to me as a kid behind his alcoholism. And, but when he got sober and at the time of mother's day in 1993, he was about 12 years sober. He lived in a house that had 12 steps to the front door. <laughs> so so the, really? the idea that, which was obnoxious and, and I never even thought about AA, which is funny because it saved my brother's life. All that time I was in that apartment, hating myself, wishing I could be different. It never, not one time crossed my mind to go to AA. And my brother was proof that it really, really worked. But that was the day, May, May 8th or 9th, I think was Mother's Day that year. And um, which is, I think, kind of sweet that I share that with Bob and Bill. You know, I've spoken at Founders oh, yeah. Day in Akron and my sponsor, Bill, flew out and we went to the, the, the gatehouse and sat in the room where Bob and Bill talked. And that was the day after Mother's Day. And so uh, that's it. That was the catalyst. But there, you know, it's kind of like Bob Dylan. They, you know, he was talking to Leonard Cohen, and and he asked Leonard Cohen, "How long did it take you to write Suzanne?" And Leonard Cohen said, "You know, eleven years." And Leonard Cohen asked Bob Dylan, "How long did it take you to write It's All Right, Ma? I'm Only Bleeding?" And he goes, "You know, about fifteen minutes." And Leonard Cohen said, "Yeah, thirty years and fifteen minutes, right?" And so, yeah, that was the moment that I, I couldn't stand myself anymore. And, and I didn't really say what happened. When, my, when I did call my brother, I, I screamed and yelled at him and he didn't say anything. And there really wasn't room in the conversation for him to say anything. That wasn't the design of the monologue. And when I ran out of steam and I was quiet for a minute, he just very quietly said, uh, I think you have a problem with alcoholism, you know? And, um, and, and that was part of the grace, but the real grace was that I said inadvertently, and I, and I mean that in the truest sense of that word, I inadvertently accidentally said, of course I do. And I didn't expect to say that. And I think God, for a, a short version of how I'd like to describe the higher power, um, just hit me between the shoulder blades and the, the truth fell out. But th- that moment wasn't my bottom. My bottom had been conspiring for about 15 years, mm. you know, or no, more like 10, more than 10 or 11. Yeah. 
We will be continuing our conversation with Matt, Matthew M. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. There you can find, uh, I don't know, 135 or so other episodes you can listen to for free. You can also find the donate button on our website. You can use if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Matthew. All right, so take me from there. So you're uh, having that conversation with your brother and then just well, move a little forward. Yeah, so it's interesting what happened to me. So I said, of course I do. And my brother, you know, thank God, my brother was a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous at the time because he, uh, he said a, a, an incredibly funny re- response to that. He said, don't, he said, don't go anywhere. <laughs> and I, I think that's so funny because honestly, if you'd watched my life for the last six months, I, I said, you know, okay. And, and he said, I'm coming right over. And, you know, don't go anywhere. I had walked next door to the liquor store a few times in the last six months. You know, I, my, my big move was going to be to slide to the other end of the couch in the spring. You know, it's like, <laughs> don't go anywhere. It was just ridiculous. But uh, he said, don't go anywhere. And I always loved him for this because. He was probably a half an hour away by the time I called him because he, he lived in Lawndale. I lived right on the beach in Redondo and it's service streets the whole way. And I called him and he was coming through my door about 10 minutes later. And I know now that's because my brother heard the most precious thing that there is in recovery and that's willingness. And he heard it in my voice and he didn't want to, uh, he knows that that window can be small. So he hurried to me. So he took me to the beach. Uh, I lived right next to the beach. I think mostly to get out of the incredible pungent smells in my off my apartment that I had gotten used to. You know, when you live in the cat box, it doesn't really bother you. But, uh, <laughs> I went down to the beach, and, and he and, and I think it's important. I, although I've told this story a thousand times, I think it's really important what he did. You know, he had been my older brother for years, and he had lots of practice you know, kind of beating the truth into me or fight or, you know, like thumping me on the chest and calling me stupid. And he did it. He, and I've heard that people in AA have had that approach and I'm appalled by that. I'm appalled by that. But he took me to the beach and he did, we sat on a lifeguard stand and I started smoking cigarettes like they were, uh, you know, going to be extinct soon because I was sucking them down and he's looking at me and just started telling me about how he felt when he got kicked out of the house lived in his car and all that and the magic of that and the the beauty and the art of that uh is why i'm here today because i expected what he would do was yell at me uh tell me i was ruining my mother's life because she was about to die uh telling me i'm throwing everything away and but he didn't he was a good member of aa and he saw me as a sick person and he told me a little bit about his own story and won my confidence. And, and you have to understand, I watched his story. So listening to him tell me how he felt the day he got kicked out of our house was very profound for me because I was like 11 or 12 years old when that happened. You know, I was a kid and I couldn't believe we did that. And so when we, we watching, hearing him describe that really got my interest and, you know, I'm not dumb. I'm smoking these cigarettes, looking at this guy with clear blue eyes, well-dressed, uh, present in his every part of his being. He's visiting my mother. He has a great job. He has that obnoxious house with 12 steps. And he's married and has children. And all I want, all I want is to get to that side of the lifeguard stand. And um, I don't know how to do it. I've been trying not to drink for over a year, almost daily. And I couldn't do it. And um, he won my confidence by telling me a little bit about his story. And then he, I thought the culmination of this conversation was when I'd start going to AA meetings, which seemed, you know, doable. So I, I threw my hands up and said, you're right, you're right, I should go to AA. And, and he laughed at me and said, uh, you're going to a hospital. And I said, I can't do that. I'm busy. 
<laughs> which I still think. I just think that's so funny. And I've actually asked, had the same reaction from people that I've told they're going to hospitals. And, uh, you know, I, I thought, I can't leave all this for 30 days. You know, I'll just waller. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the non-productivity had reached a new height. I couldn't really leave now. And so, um, but he ignored me. And that's how, coincidentally, uh, this is the part you don't know, is that uh, it was May 16th. He called me May 15th and said they were going to come get you tomorrow for rehab because it took a while to find out where to send me. And uh, I'd been drinking all night and I woke up to the phone ringing and I thought it was him. So I answered it and it wasn't him. It was a woman who told me my daughter had been born. And oh, wow. Trying to reach me. So today is also Phoebe Rose's 27th birthday. Oh, she, wow. She just left a little while ago to go see her mom, but um, she came down here to hang out for our 27th anniversary. And, wow. Uh, yeah. And so, but th- that part of the story, it's so funny. Like, I, I so wish I could lie about this and say that I, you know, what happened was I got in my car to try to find, to go see Phoebe and Anna at the hospital. And uh, I think this is worth your listeners knowing. When it says in the big book that we are selfish and self-centered, I, I am such a beautiful example of that. <laughs> I uh, I uh, went directly to the hospital where I was born. <laughs> and they weren't there. They had never been scheduled to be there. No one ever expected them to be there. But, oh, I'm sorry. I think my mic was a little out of the way. So um, they had never expected me to be there. And I was um, – I was uh, – mad that they weren't there and i actually i had a gun uh in my apartment that i had occasionally put in my mouth and when i went back to my car after not finding them i uh i decided to kill myself Hmm. and i didn't uh because of god i put my head on the steering wheel and i turned the key to the car and my head bounced off the steering wheel from the jolt of the car it was a very bad car and into my head popped the name of the hospital and I, that's grace, you know, um, that's just grace. And I drove to the hospital instead of going home to the gun and, um, more and more grace. I, I, I'd love to make a big lie out of this. And then I saw my daughter and I realized how much potential I had. And I had this moment of clarity and I fell in love with life. And, and I had the exact opposite response. I held my daughter in my arms and I felt repulsed by her beauty. Mm. She was stunning, and Anna was shine a shining light, and uh, and I couldn't have felt farther away from two people in the universe than I did at that moment. I felt just filthy, and I didn't want to do anything else with my life. I wanted it to stop, and so I went back to Plan B. Uh, I handed Phoebe back to Anna, and I lied. I said everything's going to be all right. And I got in a car and I drove back to my house and I ran up the stairs to shoot myself. And my brother was sitting on my porch with my stuff. And uh, that's Grace. And I went in the car. I got in the car. I think we must have gone to my parents' house because my parents were the people who eventually drove me to the desert where I went to rehab, but uh, that's what it was like. And that's what happened. Does your daughter know about that story? I'm assuming she does. Well, it's, it, that's an interesting thing. I, I don't know. Um, you know, AA is a funny beast in the 2020, you know, there's, it's not very hard to find these talks on the internet. Right. And the only person who's officially heard my story is my son, Rory, who's 22. And when he was 18, he uh, went to a camp out with me. And, and normally what happens if my kids go to an AA conference with me is they come to the meeting and then they put their headphones on and listen to iTunes while I talk. Because, you know, I don't, they never met that guy. They don't need to know that guy. And, and they've done that for years. And Rory came and, and when he was 18 and said, I'm going to listen to your talk. And I said, well, let me think about that. And he said, I don't think you understand. I'm 18. I'm not asking you. <laughs> I'm telling you. And uh, he listened. And I didn't pull any punches. I told the whole story, which we're about halfway through. And he uh, 
he jumped up and like almost knocked the podium over to hold me and we became a lot closer. I had wasn't enlightened thinking they all need to hear the story. And and a lot of it with Phoebe, I I don't need her to hear about Anna, you know, what what he's known she's known as we've done our best as parents to be there for her. And I don't my guess is Phoebe has probably googled it, you know, and listened to it. She doesn't um ever ask about it. Uh, she loves the, the the effect of Alcoholics Anonymous on our family because, you know, I got sober in Los Angeles and I'm very active. So we'd have lots of people at the house. Uh, we mo- movie stars, you know, rock stars. We've had uh, people living in our Airstream trailer, people sleeping on our couch. Um, they grew up thinking this is normal, so, <laughs> right. you know. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, it was funny. I, you know, I'm a fallen away Catholic, and one of my neighbors came to me in Long Beach and said she converted to Catholicism. And she said one of the things that was so intriguing to me is that you're Catholic, which I would never call myself Catholic now, and you're just always helping people. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't really have the heart to tell her it had nothing to do with being Catholic. But uh, I don't know if Phoebe knows, and she doesn't really care. So what's it like being in L.A.? Uh, You know, a lot of people who are listening to this are in kind of remote areas, if you will. Uh, You know, and and I've talked about this with many of the guests, but you and I are both fortunate. We can throw a stone and and hit a meeting, well, except for in these times. Right, right. uh, uh, What's it, I mean... You, you, you've been to meetings in other areas, and I know you've lived in different areas. Right. Can you kind of compare and contrast what it's like being in there and in L.A.? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, in fact, um, yeah, I went up to visit uh, Phoebe and Anna and Chico. Uh, she, Anna went to college up there, and, and it was really hard to find a meeting. And it was, you know, uh, so in L.A., it's a, yeah, to answer that question in the spirit in which you ask it, um, it you can go to a meeting at 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 11 a.m., noon, 4, 7, no matter where you are in the South Bay, you're about the maximum, you're 25 minutes away from a meeting like that, right? And for me, um, if we move a little farther into the story, in fact, I'll tell you when I, I, well, I'll wait just a second. For me, those early times of being able to go to a meeting all the time were super helpful, mostly because I was really uncomfortable in my living situation for a while, and I was getting real squirrely, and I didn't have anywhere safe to go. I mean, I knew enough that I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to uh, drive around or ride my bike to the beach. There's just too much danger for somebody as plugged into the underworld as I had become. Um, so having like point I, if i left point a which was my uncomfortable living situation and went to point b which was a meeting i at least would be safe there and there were so many that any time i felt squirrely i could go um but having said that um i was no more comfortable at the meeting than i was in my uncomfortable living situation it just was a different t- type of discomfort and i needed a little variety and and you know i mean anyone who's listening to this if you're in recovery or you've tried to be in recovery uh that first year is pretty you know pretty unbearable inside your own skin i i think it was cliff roach used to say if you know if alcohol doesn't make you want to work the steps sobriety sure will Mm. and that that was my case i was very very uncomfortable but i had this one shiny thing in my life uh for the first six months before any kind of step work really was having any effect i had this really kind of beautiful like secret thing that just belonged to me and it was 30 days and 60 days and then 90 days and I just had that was all i had in my whole life to hang my hat on i had ruined a really good artistic career. I had ruined um, some real dear friendships. Uh, I'd almost, almost uh, ruined Anna and and almost hurt Phoebe before she was born. And um, I just didn't have much to to get me to look myself in the eye. So having ninety days was enough to handle the discomfort of my living situation and the discomfort of you. Because I, I had that. Okay, so we are running across with you what I run across with several guests. 
and that is we are just now getting sober with you. Right. And uh, will you do me a favor and come back for a second part to this oh, so yeah. we can finish out your story? Will you be good with that? Yeah, I'd be happy. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, stop it now, and then I'll set up some other time with you, and we can come back and record the rest of your story and share that with the Silver Speak audience, okay? Hey, John. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. God bless you. Much thanks to you, Matthew M. And as a reminder to all of you, Matthew will be back next week with the second part of his story, You will not want to miss that. Be sure to tune in. I, as we were finishing up, neglected to read page 164 of the big book as we, generally speaking, will close up the episodes. So let me go ahead and do that now. Page 164 says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Mr. Matthew, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Now, on to a little bit of a listener feedback. Kim writes in and Kim says, first of all, the subject line was, you're cracking me up. And she says, hi, John. So curiosity got me to jump ahead on the podcast. I have been listening to episode 73 and hopped all the way to episode number 139. And it is quite a shock in a good way. You, John, have really let loose. Let your inner weirdo out. <laughs> and you are and you are letting your freak flag fly. <laughs> Triple exclamation point. You are a spaz with about five Z's and five exclamation points. I find that very refreshing, though, as a lot of people put up their, quote, cool, unquote, front and do not let us see their silly side. I mean, hello, my lords, and hello, my ladies, question mark. (laughs) How can that introduction not make everyone smile and feel a little lighter? Thank you for your goofball sense of humor. Well, I hope everybody sees it that way, Kim. Uh, I've gotten other letters, but nonetheless, she says, oh, Oh, here she addressed it. Am my two cents worth on your laugh? I like your funny chuckle. All those people who say, lose the laugh, unquote, do not get my vote in big capital letters. In my head, I picture you, John, to look like a combination of Dana Carvey from Saturday Night Live in the 90s and John Denver. Weird, huh? Hmm. Well, I have to think about that. You know, I mean, you're not like way far off. Uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 you know, I don't know what to say. It's a, it's a, anyway, that's an interesting guess. Uh, but anyway, okay. A little update on me now, John. Wow. I, I came really close to ruining my life by drinking again. I made it through a ter- the terrible 10 days or so where I was, quote, this close to taking that first drink. I kept listening to the podcast and I heard what was said. Get on your knees and ask for the help and strength to stay sober. I felt like an imposter and I almost felt foolish, but I did it. And I immediately felt better. Oh, wow. That makes my day, Kim. And then I remembered uh, an AA phrase that I've heard, we're only as sick as the secrets we keep, unquote. So I talked to my own grown daughter, which gave me the courage to talk to my husband, which gave me the courage to call Renee. Thank you so much for getting me her number. And I think I've made it 
onto the other side of this crisis. Talking to Renee was a huge help and makes me think I'm ready for AA. <sighs> That's what I do this for. That's exactly why I do this, Kim. Um, and just in case you all don't know, Renee is a, a guest that we have had on the podcast in the past. She's a friend of mine. And uh, I know that she, um, that uh, Kim, who's writing this, um, was impressed with Renee and what she had to say in her podcast. So I, I, I was able to hook them two up. Then she says, unfortunately, there are no in-person meetings here. So I am just hoping my frame of mind will stay this way until I can actually go. But I'm reading the big book again, getting more out of it now than I have heard you or your guests discuss. Uh, now, oh, now that I've heard you and your guests discuss the big book's text, David G really gets in my head. What he says gives me so much insight into myself, my past behaviors, and now and how those behaviors are still here, but showing up differently when I'm not drunk. I have a lot of work ahead of me, but I really want to do it. I want relief from myself. I also want to say that as a host, I like you, because you do not seem to have this big ego, you seem to truly, uh, oh, I like you, uh, because you do not seem to have this uh, big ego, you seem to truly appreciate we the listeners, oh God, you're right about that, Kim, no doubt about it, Um, you seem so genuine. I guess I just know too many people who have their guard up all the time, who always wear a false front to hide behind, because when I listen to you and many of your guests, I always think, I want to know these people. I need people like this in my life, because you're so open and honest. I feel like I could be myself around you And you guys, instead of trying to get in a world where everyone else is playing the elaborate game that they should all seem to understand how to navigate by hiding their emotions and knowing how and when to lie. And I just seem to tell the truth when I should fib and I lie when honesty would be the best policy. Being human is hard. Well said. Anyway, she says in big capital letters, again, thank you for the podcast. Thank you for, thank you, thank you for all you do to bring these voices and stories to me. Peace, bro, Kim M and the PNW. And for those of you who are not insiders like me and don't know what PNW means, it means the Pacific North West. So does that mean, I guess, like either the Seattle area, the Portland area, all up there in that Pacific Northwest area? Anyway, thank you for writing in, Kim. That really, really uh, made my day. Thank you so much. Terry writes in and she says, Oh, oh, the, the title, the subject line was Bill C. She says, Oh my goodness. I just listened to Bill C on step three, episode 125. Wow, I took several pages of notes. His view on the work and compassion it creates within within you was amazing. It made so much sense to me. Compa- compassion breeds in uh, tolerance, patience, and understanding, which a lot of times turns into a spiritual awakening. Hmm. So fantastic, and I have been struggling with the faith component of AA, uh, because I had such a strong faith when I was younger. And he says, I am paraphrasing, of course, you would be struggling with your faith because you have been participating in actions that go against your faith. Yes, yes, yes. I like that. Um, so fantastic. Oh, excuse me. This is my take, she says. The work and the knowledge of the disease helps you build your compassion for others, but for yourself as well. And forgiving yourself is everything because you begin to realize that you are worthy of God's love. Or maybe that's just me being self-centered. I don't know. Ha ha. But I am learning so much from these podcasts. Three exclamation points. Thank you so much for your service, John. It has helped me more than you will ever know. 
Oh, a big heart, big heart. Well, thank you so much, Terry. You're the best. And thank you for writing in. And thank you for the big hearts. <laughs> heart back at you. Jen writes in and Jen says, hi, John. I am in Virginia. I would like to share about my recovery, but not yet. I have only three days sober this time around. I'm in a safe place and just connected with a local AA group. However, my husband is not willing, uh, my husband is not allowing me to stay at home right now. So I know there is no way I could share without crying. I'm doing everything I possibly can to stay sober and healthy. I found Sober Speak by just searching for podcasts on recovery. Sober Speak is so great and so relatable. I actually had to pause the one with Brittany and catch my breath because it was hitting so close to home. I'm looking forward to more episodes. Thanks for adding me to the Facebook group, Jen. You are more than welcome, Jen. Um, I was able to get Jen in touch with Brittany, who's another one of our guests on the podcast. And uh, I just kind of get out of the middle from there. And uh, I'm just, um, thanks for thanks for being vulnerable, Jen, about your three days of sobriety and about your family situation. And I'm so, so honored and privileged that this podcast can be a small part of your journey. I sure do appreciate it. Corey writes in, and the subject line is, I love your podcast. He says, Dear John, my name is Corey, and I am an alcoholic. I am just over six months sober and loving life. I signed on the other day looking for an AA podcast while doing chores. Yours was the first one to come up. After listening to my first sober speak with Doug M., I was hooked. His talk about his white light experience and how he knows it was more it was more than just an effect of an overdose is something I needed to hear. I experienced something similar going through DTs. It was terrifying, but it brought me to AA and made me believe in a higher power. I have been struggling with people telling me it was just withdrawals. Today, I know it doesn't matter what caused it. All that matters is that it got me to where I am today, and that is sober. I listen to many more of your guests throughout the day, and I love their talks and your goofy ways. You know, I guess that's a, (laughs) that's the second, the first letter I read from Kim said, I think something about a goofball, and and Corey's saying something about my goofy ways. Is that kind of like a left-handed compliment? I think that's a good thing. Anyway, he says, I would love to be part of your super secret Facebook group. Thank you for putting out this great content and helping me stay sober and and feel this great AA community, Corey. Well, thank you, Corey, for writing in. And uh, like with everybody else, I'm I, I really do. And and I don't. I'm not just saying this to say it. I, just the fact that I get to be a small part of this thing called recovery and your lives, the ones who are listening in, and and we get to connect, even though it may be virtually, it 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 helps me to grow. It helps me to 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 have faith in humanity. Uh, it helps me to have a, a some sort of purpose, and 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 I I am just forever grateful for you guys out there. I truly am. Ricky R posted in the super secret Facebook group. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I took it out of there. He said, "The worldly clamors going on these days remind me of what happened to Bill." And what happens to me when I get caught up in worldly clamors? Bill shared about his experience on page 12. And so I went to look that up. If you look at the bottom of page 12 of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, it says there had been a humble willingness to have him 
God with me, and he, God, came. But soon, this sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors, mostly those within myself. And so, it had never been ever since how blind I had been. So, what what Ricky says after that, he says, I finally realized that there will always be and has always been worldly clamors going on. When I get caught up in them, very subtly, I start to become separated from God. I go from a life of love and service to a life of judgment. Once again, I become the actor Bill describes on page 60 and 61. My judgment causes me to believe if everyone would do as I think they should do, everything would be great. Anybody ever thought that way? I know I have. Ricky goes on, the end result is fear, resentment, self-pity, and depression. I spread my judgment to all who will listen and infect them with my reborn spiritual malady. Well put there, Mr. Ricky. You could be another Bill Wilson, my friend. Anyway, he says, I have become a producer of confusion rather than harmony. My unmanageability has completely shut God out of my life. I will ride this jud- this juggernaut of self-will all the way to a drink unless I can shift back to a life of love and service. Oh, Ricky, to me that was just beautifully put. Um, I don't know. You, you know, it's fortunate, I'm thinking now, though, that... Uh, You know, Bill was talking about worldly clamors back in his day, but fortunately, our world has completely calmed down and there's nothing (laughs) going on in the world to clamor about, would you say? (laughs) I'm sorry, I got myself on that one. Oh gosh, just turn on the news for like for like <laughs> turn on the news for like five minutes is all it takes. But anyway, Ricky goes on with some more good content. He says the 12 and 12 has some good advice on page 91 that I find very useful these days. So I went ahead and went to page 91 and looked that up to see what Mr. Ricky was talking about. And it says, um, well, there's a, there's a lot on page 91. That's step 10, by the way, in the 12 and 12, page 91, for those of you wanting to look it up at home, it says, in all these situations, in all these situations, we need self-restraint, honest analysis of what is involved, a willingness, a willingness to admit when the fault is theirs, just kidding, when the fault is ours and an equal willingness to forgive when the fault is elsewhere. We need not be discouraged when we fall into the error of our old ways for these disciplines are not easy. We shall look for progress, not perfection. So, and there's something else that uh, Ricky brought up here as he was finishing up. He says, there's also something else on page 91. It says, our first step, our first job is to sidestep these traps. When we are tempted by the bait, we should train ourselves to step back and think, for we can never think or act to good purpose until the habit of self-restraint has become automatic. Now, let me go ahead and read that again. 
and think about it in terms of what's going on in the world nowadays. And I know everyone out there has their different thoughts on this, but I'm trying to look at this. I think what Bill is saying and what Ricky is trying to point out is, is that if I just look at what's in front of me, it can get me upset. But if I kind of back up from it and look at it from a spiritual perspective, and I look at it from a 10,000 foot view, like God would look at it, it may be something like this. Our first job is to sidestep the, the, the traps. When we are tempted by the bait, the bait, right? Somebody egging me on, somebody telling me that I'm not doing it right, or somebody telling me that I should be doing it a different way, or I hear somebody trying to tell me that I do it, do, should do it a different way. When I'm tempted by the bait, we should train ourselves, it says, to step back and think. For we can neither think nor act to good purpose. Read that again. For we can neither think nor act to good purpose until the habit of self-restraint has become automatic. Thank you, Ricky, for putting that in the secret Facebook group. I so, so do appreciate it. All right, everybody. That wraps up another episode, the one with Mr. Matthew M. uh, of Sober Speak. Keep coming back. It works if you work it, folks. And I think I'm going to be back next week. I'll take it one week at a time. Until then, grace and peace to you.